how great it is to stand on a stage behind so many items gathered. Thank you. The homeless in Springfield will receive a blessing. And the blessing they will receive is not merely the goods that will be in the bags that will be distributed, but they will also receive the good news. For these will not just be items of material possession that can be received. There will be a time to give, a time to share, and a time to make sure the good news accompanies all these good things. Thank you for your generosity. God values my generosity. And when each one of us says that, we know that we are on the right track. I appreciate this as a visual reminder, and I appreciate our good communion reminder this morning to remember me. That's what Jesus says. Now, Clay O'Dell, our executive minister, had a very different college experience than I did. He was hitting home runs. He was very interested in that inside curveball. I was not hitting home runs. I was very interested in something different. I was very interested in group activities that had a particular girl in the group. Her name was Kim Cook, and she's sitting over there right now. And I remember one of my very favorite group activities was Monday night dollar bowl. Now, you had to hustle because curfew was 10, dollar bowl started at 9, and so it was a rush every Monday to see how many games you could roll in that 42 minutes so that you could put the shoes away and drive back to campus and get back for curfew. That was the plan. I loved going to those group settings. It wasn't like today where you can just sort of investigate somebody online. No, you really had to get to know them. And one of the ways you can really get to know someone is in a group setting because if you want to find out what they are really like, find out how they treat people in a group setting. Now, it was very clear to me that Kim was a young woman of noble character. We're going through Ruth right now, and in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz tells Ruth, everyone in town knows that you are a woman of noble character. And it was very clear to everybody that Kim was a woman, a young woman of noble character. But it was not clear to anybody that I had any nobility. You see, in my life, I've struggled with three really big sins, lust, greed, and pride. And pride sometimes as a young man comes through, and I like to try to show off in those group settings and let people know how knowledgeable I was. That was sort of my thing. I fancied myself a smarty pants. And so I would quote baseball statistics or movie lines, and I was pretty good on the draw. And well, Kim had one friend, and uh, her name was Leslie, and I don't think that she liked me very much. I think that she thought I was a, an arrogant kind of a fella. And Leslie's now a missionary in China, bless her. She's doing great work for the Lord. And one day she said, Andrew, you know so much. Do you know what John 3.17 says? And I said, everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And she said, that's not what I asked. Yeah, everybody knows John 3.16. What about John 3.17? And I said, oh, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him? That John 3, 17? I thought, oh, man, that girl, Kim, she's going to marry me, no problem. Well, it didn't exactly work out that way, you see, because that's kind of an arrogant response. And after one date with Kim, I wasn't sure we were going to get a second date. But in between date one and date two was my very first preaching point. And I invited Kim Cook to go hear me preach. 
And I think that as she saw me preach, and I think that as we developed a friendship, and I think that as she saw my love for the Lord, it became clear to her that, well, Andrew, even though he comes across as pretty arrogant, still understands that a true faith commitment humbly trusts God to redeem us. And here's a guy who likes God stuff, at least. He's got God stuff somewhat figured out, and he wants to learn more about God stuff. And he's got a true faith commitment, and I think that is what convinced Kim Cook to go on a second date, a third date, eventually become Kim Kirshner. And for that, I'm so, so grateful. Welcome to Glendale Christian Church, everybody. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to worship with us. We are marching through the book of Ruth, and it has been a joy to learn about the deep faith commitments in this book. Today, there's a misconception that we need to clear up about the book of Ruth, and I'm excited that we get to do it. Because here at Glendale Christian Church, we're not merely about loving God with our heads. We're also about loving God with our hearts and loving God with our hands. We need to believe true things about God. We need to trust God fully, and we need to demonstrate a loving obedience that flows from our knowledge and our trust. And we have evidence of that here this morning. Thank you once again. God values your generosity. But God also values our knowledge. God values our knowledge and God values our worship. And we see in the book of Ruth all sorts of wonderful, fantastic things going on. So if you'd like to, please follow along in your own scriptures as we jump into Ruth chapter 3 or follow along on the screens behind me. Ruth chapter 3 is very important because it comes right on the heels of Ruth chapter 2. You certainly have been reading Ruth chapter 2 because the challenge every week has been to read the entire book of Ruth. Now it's four chapters long and I'm asking you to read the entire book of Ruth every single day. And on top of that, read one chapter from the book of Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 successively daily. And then also every single day, read about the wife of noble character in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31. And if you do this, your knowledge of the Word of God will deepen so much that as we preach through these texts, you will see things illuminate because you know exactly what's coming. So if you haven't joined in the the challenge, don't worry, it's not too late. Every day this week, read the book of Ruth. Every day this week, read the book of Proverbs, chapters one through nine. Pick one chapter and read it. And then also read the book of Proverbs chapter 31 verses 10 through 31 to hear about the wife of noble character. Because in this book we see that Boaz is a representation of wisdom and Ruth is a representation of nobility. Ruth is this wife of noble character, and Boaz is this godly, wise man. So as we read Proverbs, and we seek to grow in our knowledge of wisdom, and we seek to grow in our knowledge of nobility, and as we read the book of Ruth, and we see the interplay between both Boaz and Ruth, we see this coming together, and that can be us. So let's jump right into our text, Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. The time of harvest was done, 
The very last verse of chapter 2 indicated that Boaz invited Ruth to follow along with his female workers so that she could glean the fields and that she could get the grain that was left in the corners of the field unharvested so that she and her mother-in-law Naomi would have something to eat. And he said, you can stay with us during the whole uh, wheat and barley harvest. And this would have taken a number of weeks to collect the harvest. And now the harvest time was coming to a close. But this does mean that Ruth and Boaz spent a lot of time together. But they weren't dating like we think of modern dating where you go on one-on-one excursions. No, this was a group setting. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's workers until the harvest was done and there was a time where they got to know each other. And Ruth was able to see how Boaz treated people in a group setting and Boaz was able to observe Ruth and how she was in a group setting and they were able to learn much about the other's character. So when Naomi says, I want to find a home for you, well, you'll be well provided for. The word that she uses in Hebrew is the exact same word that she uses in chapter 1, verse 9, where she talks about finding a home of rest, because marriage should be a place of rest. It should be a place where we come together and find security and rest in a husband. This is what Naomi wanted for Ruth. And she said, you know, Boaz with whose workers you have been gleaning. He is a relative of ours, but he's not just any relative. Boaz is a goel. A goel is a special type of relative, for any male relative can be part of your family, but a special male relative, a chieftain male relative, is somebody closely related to your family who carries certain rights and responsibilities. The goel is a very, very important term. It gets translated as kinsman redeemer, or maybe if you read the NIV, guardian redeemer. And there were four primary responsibilities for the goel. The first was to buy back relatives out of slavery. Leviticus describes a person of the Jewish nation getting sold into slavery and then a relative of that person could go buy back that person, redeem that person. That was the job of the goel. But so was it to become the avenger of blood. Back when it was eye for an eye, if somebody in your family was murdered, you didn't get the whole group together to go hunt them down. It was the Goel who would be the avenger of blood, according to Numbers 35, and he would dole out God's swift justice. And this was appropriate. He would also buy back a relative's land. If a relative found themselves destitute and they had to sell land so that they could take care of things, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, would purchase the field back on behalf of the person that it was, uh, from whom it was sold. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, was marrying a relative's childless widow. So if you had a relative and he got married and then he died and the widow had no children, it was the responsibility of a goel, a kinsman redeemer, to marry the childless widow and therefore continue on the family line of the now deceased person. This is what Naomi was suggesting to Ruth, Boaz, could be the goel. He's a relative of ours, and he's a recognized Goel of the clan of Elimelech. So the deceased husband of Naomi is this guy named Elimelech, and he's the father-in-law of Ruth. Now, Elimelech had two children with Naomi, Kilian and Machlen, and so uh, Naomi was not a childless widow, but Ruth is a childless widow. And so by marrying Ruth and having children by her, the family line of Elimelech through Malin would continue This is a very important thing to Israel. 
So, we continue our text, the second half of verse 2 through verse 5, where Naomi explains, Tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. And so Ruth is getting ready to go do this because she knows that Boaz is going to be on the winnowing floor. Now, winnowing is the agrarian practice of taking all the harvested wheat or barley and then crushing it, either by beast or by humans, knocking it with sticks so that you could loosen the husks around the usable grain. And then winnowing was the process of taking this big pile of collected, harvested agrarian material, taking a giant fork, jabbing it, and throwing it up into the air so that when you throw it up into the air, the wind starts to separate things. The good grain, which weighs more, will drop to the ground, and the chaff, the husk, will get blown away. And so this was a very, very important aspect. Now, the threshing floor is where this winnowing process would take place. And Boaz, the mighty man of great wealth and character, would have had a stone circle in which he could winnow to make it easier to keep the good grain in one location. It would have looked something similar to this. There's this stone circle that you can put all your grain in that has been harvested. And as you winnow and the chaff and the husk gets blown away, you now have a giant pile of good usable grain that you can turn into food. This is very, very important. The text tells us that Boaz would have slept near the pile of grain on the threshing floor. But why? Why would he have done that? It wasn't because he was so tired and after a long day of winnowing with his giant fork, his muscles were... No, no, that wasn't why. He did it because this book is taking place during the time of Judges, and Judges is one of the great periods of disobedience in all of Israel's history, and he needs to make sure that robbers don't come get his grain. This is, in fact, the exact same thing that his great-grandson, King David, would talk about in 1 Samuel 23, verse 1, when he says, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kilia and are looting the threshing floors. Bad guys are going to come and loot and rob and steal your threshing floor. And so, mighty man of Israel, you'd better be there to protect and defend your grain. Threshing floors are really important. They're important in ancient agrarian life, but they have an even greater importance spiritually and biblically. While the threshing floor is a physical space for chaff and edible grain to be separated, It symbolizes far, far more than this. It represents judgment. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, biblically speaking, the threshing floor represented the place of judgment, the separation between good and evil in a spiritual sense. Hosea would later prophesy because Israel had repeatedly turned from God to false idols that God's judgment would be on them. And in the book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 3, God says, Therefore, they will be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through the window. They would be judged. In Psalm 1, David describes the wicked like chaff in contrast to those who delight in God's word. 
Blessed is the one who delights in the word of God and meditates on his word day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever such a person does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment. This theme of judgment and separation is continued in the New Testament. When John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 refers to Lord Jesus, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Oh yes, the threshing floor is a place of judgment. It symbolizes judgment. It symbolizes separation of the good from the wicked, and the wicked cannot stand in judgment. They will be separated from God eternally. Who is wicked? Is it those who bomb and terrorize Israel by sending rockets? Yes. Those who terrorize and bomb Israel by sending rockets are wicked indeed. Is it those who sow seeds of discord, hatred, and racism under the guise of critical race theory? Yes! It is those who sow the seeds of discord, hatred, and racism under the guise of critical race theory that are wicked indeed. Is it those who overstep their constitutional powers and enact rules outside of the legislative process? Yes! Those who overstep their constitutional powers and enact rules outside of the legislative process are wicked indeed. Is it those who deny the biblically God-ordained complementary role of men and women or who seek to erase unique gender or who decry masculinity as toxic? Yes! Those who seek to deny the God-ordained complementary role of men and women or seek to erase unique gender or who decry masculinity as toxic are wicked indeed. Is it those who endorse wholesale infanticide through the practice of abortion? Yes! Those who endorse wholesale infanticide through the practice of abortion are wicked indeed. Is it those who do many kind and wonderful deeds but fall outside of God's gracious salvation? Yes. Those who do many wonderful and kind deeds but fall outside of God's gracious salvation are indeed wicked. No matter how many wonderful and kind deeds a person does, it is never enough to overcome even one sin for any sin against the infinite God deserves infinite punishment. What's more, all the good any person could do their entire life is already owed to God in virtue of his creating us in the first place. All the good a person could ever do, they already owe God. So any sin at all puts a person in a terrible spot. No matter how hard they work, no matter how good looking they may be, no matter how strong they are, no, how much, no matter how much money or power they accumulate, no matter how hard they try, they cannot do anything themselves to be right with God. They are wicked indeed. But what about us? 
What about us? We who pledge allegiance to and place our faith in Christ but continue to struggle with sin. Are we wicked? No. Now, don't mishear me. All merely human people sin, Christians included. All. But listen well, because this is of utmost importance. We who pledge allegiance to and place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, even if we continue to sin, are saved. We are covered by the blood of Christ. We are transformed by the Holy Spirit. We are redeemed by God's grace. Here's how it works. God is the perfect being. God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good. God is eternal and necessary, and he is the triune creator of heaven and earth. And the very best thing that God ever made was humankind in his image. And by making us in his image, he endowed us with rationality and choice. And he gave us the choice to obey him or to rebel against him. But humankind used that freedom to choose poorly. And we have all sinfully rebelled against God. And because God is perfect and holy, he cannot be around sin. And so we who have sinned are separated from God. But because God is perfectly loving, God can't stand to be apart from the creation he made in his own image. And so the entire Bible is a story of God pulling humanity back to himself. And the culmination of bringing humanity back to himself was when God the Father sent God the Son, whom we know as Jesus Christ, to live a perfect and sinless life on earth. And because he committed no sin, he was able to take the place of sinful human beings on the cross. He took our punishment, the punishment that we deserve. We should die on the cross for our sin, but Jesus, who had no sin, who became human for us, died on the cross. And God the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and the Spirit indwells anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead and confessing with their life their allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And if you do this, you are saved. The New Testament describes it like this in the book of Ephesians. As for us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of this world and of the devil, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. A true faith commitment humbly trusts God to redeem us. A true faith commitment is humble. Our salvation is not because of anything good that we have done. Our salvation is entirely from the good of what God has done. This free gift is ours when we accept it through faith. There is no room for boasting except in Christ. For left to our own devices, we are wicked indeed. Apart from God, we are wicked indeed. 
Without God, we engage in all kinds of wickedness. Without God, we are wicked indeed. But we are not without God. We have a Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And Titus 2.14 describes Him this way. Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people of His very own, eager to do what is good. A true faith commitment humbly trusts God to redeem us. The book of Ruth can be understood with this redemption in mind. The threshing floor was not just for grain. The threshing floor represents judgment. Ruth symbolizes the believer. Boaz symbolizes the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Boaz is a very kind and noble and generous and wise man who's kind to Ruth. And Ruth trusted Boaz amidst her obstacles. Their story is a reflection of what can happen on the spiritual fleshing threshing floor. We are like grain freed from the wrath our nature deserves. We sin, true, and therefore we have husks. But Jesus Christ frees us from the fire those husks deserve. Jesus redeemed us from the penalty of sin by dying on the cross and by being raised from the dead. We receive that redemption when we humbly trust God to redeem us. So are we who place our faith in and pledge allegiance to Lord Jesus wicked? No! Jesus has winnowed us, removed our husks. He's taken the penalty our sins deserve. He's redeemed us from all wickedness. Thanks be to God. A true faith commitment humbly trusts God to redeem us. So well, our text involves Naomi instructing Ruth to go to the threshing floor where Boaz is to sleep. There is no funny business in mind. There's only a need for a redeemer. Let's look again at our text in verse 3. Tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash! Put on your perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. Naomi demonstrates a very keen understanding of male behavior. And so it is, when he lies down, Naomi says, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth says. Naomi instructs Ruth to go uncover his feet. Now, this is not provocative in any way whatsoever. This is an act of total humble submission because the servant is the one who sleeps at the feet of her master so that he can command and she can go right away. And so by peeling the blanket back up off of his feet and lying down at his feet, it is an action that would be understood completely in terms of total humble submissiveness. A true faith commitment humbly trusts God to redeem us, just as Ruth humbly submitted to Boaz, trusting in his goodness fully to redeem her. So when Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz will tell Ruth what she should do, this is a situation that could break very badly if Boaz was the type of person who had a penchant for wickedness, but he wasn't, and Ruth knew that, and Naomi knew that. 
Naomi knew that because he's a relative, and Ruth knew that because of the time that she spent with him. Remember, if you want to get to know a person, see how he treats people in a group setting because it will inevitably come out what kind of character that person has. Naomi had a chance to get to, uh, or Ruth had a chance to get to know Boaz, and they knew what kind of man he was, a godly man, a chivalrous man, a mighty man, one to whom Ruth could confidently submit. And so when we see verses six through eight, it says, Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quickly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned. It was a young woman lying at his feet. Yeah, I would say he would be startled. He's sleeping in arm's reach of his sword, ready to fend off robbers as the mighty man of Israel, and he wakes up and realizes, there's a woman down at my feet. This would have startled him greatly, wiping the sleep out of his eyes, getting to his right senses, thinking, what will happen? What will happen right now? In this amazing scene, he looks in the darkness, and since Boaz is there to protect against thieves, it would have shocked him seeing somebody lie at his feet, knowing that she was not a threat, but not knowing who she was, Boaz asks, who are you? I'm your servant Ruth, she said, and here's the key to the entire chapter. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. Boaz asks and Ruth answers, and she calls herself a servant even though she wasn't a servant. She wasn't one of the hired women that worked in the field. She was given special permission to go there as a poor, impoverished foreigner. A true faith commitment humbly trusts God to redeem us. Sadly, however, many people misunderstand what's going over here. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Some people think that this is uh, provocative or an indecent proposal. Nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort. There is not a sexual aspect to this text whatsoever. This was not a sexual request at all. This is instead one of the great faith commitments ever spoken here, with this faith commitment, by asking Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her, Ruth not only demonstrates her humble trust in Boaz to redeem her, but she points back to the profound blessing that Boaz pronounced over her in chapter 2. Remember, Boaz says in chapter 2, verse 12, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So when Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment, that's actually a really bad translation. The better translation is, um, spread your wings over me. Scratch out corner of your garment and replace it with, spread your wings over me. In fact, the Hebrew word kanaf is exactly the word used here. The Hebrew word kanaf is used of physical birds and their wings. It's used of, of certain classifications of angels. And it's even used for garments or corners, like when God says, the four corners of the earth. It's the Hebrew word kanaf. So when Boaz says, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge, kanaf, and now Ruth says, spread your wings over me, kanaf, she is asking Boaz to be the means of blessing that Boaz pronounced on her from God. Boaz, will you be the means that God uses to bless me? You spread your wings over me so that I can be blessed. This is incredibly important. 
In fact, this exact same word, kanath, meaning wings, is used in Psalm 17. Show me the wonders of your great love, who you save by your right hand those who take refuge from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And in fact, this is the same word used in Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Now, sometimes it is best translated as garment. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, God is speaking through Ezekiel to the people, saying, I will spread the corners of my garment over you. And I spread my uh, corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So when Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me, there's nothing sexual going on at all. She's saying, spread your wings over me, hinting back to the same blessing that Boaz pronounced over her. May the God of Israel spread his wings over you and bless you, for he is the one under whose wing you have come to take refuge. Ruth was humbly admitting her own inadequacy to redeem herself and to redeem her mother-in-law. She's desperate and demonstrating trust to Boaz as the fulfillment of the blessing that he asked God to deliver to her. Ruth is demonstrating her trust that Boaz is the means by which God will spread his wings over Ruth. In the same way that Jesus Christ is the means by which God spreads his wings of blessing over us, that's what Boaz is representing to Ruth. She's asking Boaz to marry her to redeem her, and to redeem Naomi and the line of Elimelech. Ruth is demonstrating a true faith commitment and humbly trusting God to redeem her through Boaz, a type of Christ. So spread your wings over me can be translated, spread the corner of your garment over me. And this was a culturally relevant way of saying, I'm a widow, please redeem me. Now, I know this because when it comes to modern Jewish weddings, even to this day, when a Jewish groom takes his Jewish bride, he will take the edge of his talith, which is the prayer shawl that he wears. And during the ceremony, he will wrap the corner of his talith over his bride, indicating to everyone, she is under my protection. This is the exact sort of thing that Boaz and Ruth have in mind when she says, spread the corner of your garment over me. This is the image that comes to mind. Now, I'm very grateful that I've been able to spread my wings over my bride. And in fact, a week from Monday, I will have been married to Kim for 18 years. And I'm so grateful that she saw that even though I had lots of missteps during our group adventures bowling and the arrogant 20-year-old Andrew was on full display, she saw enough of my true faith commitment and my trusting humbly in God to redeem me, to give me a chance. And I pray that I've lived up to the trust that you've put in me. And I pray that I can be the man you need me to be to lead our family because I want to have a true faith commitment and humbly trust God to redeem me. Well, a true faith commitment humbly trusts God to redeem and both Ruth and Boaz know exactly what was meant by this. And so Boaz says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. 
This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, for you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. This highlights the age disparity between Boaz and Ruth, and it also highlights the incredible nature of Boaz, because Boaz demonstrated gentle respect. This mighty man of battle, of wealth, of nobility, of kindness, and of wisdom, despite his pedigree, never presumed that Ruth would desire him. He never presumed that. And he never had any idea of romance between them. But it also shows us something wonderful about Ruth. It shows her humble trust. She based her attraction to Boaz on character more than appearance. Too many people these days will run after the image rather than the character of a person. But Ruth trusted Boaz's goodness, his wisdom, his godliness, and in doing so, demonstrated not only a true faith commitment to God, but demonstrated a great kindness to Boaz. And so, Boaz says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid, for I will do all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Boaz knows that Ruth is a wife of noble character, and he uses the phrase in Hebrew, Yahil, a Yahil woman. This is the same phrase that's used of Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1, a Yahil man, a mighty man of virtue, a mighty woman of virtue. And it's, of course, the same phrase that's used in Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, describing the wife of noble character. And so, one of the things that I asked for in my life was a jacket, just like this. Just like Boaz understood the importance of garments, I understand the importance of garments. And I asked Kim, my bride, when I was getting hired at Ozark Christian College as a professor, I said, honey, I really want a corduroy sport jacket with elbow patches so I look professorial. That's really, really what I want. And so it happened that finally one year, my wife bought me this jacket, corduroy, elbow patches, so professorial of me. Yes, I stand there, and I get to teach, and I get to preach, and I get to, and I needed it because at the time I was only 26 or 27, and I had to come across as older than I was so that I could have some credibility. Now at 40, I guess it would be all right without the, the professor jacket, but I needed it back then, and Kim knew I really, really wanted it. She knew I really, really wanted it until one year she gave me this jacket and I'm so grateful because as she gave me this jacket, it was a small garment reminder of, okay, spread the wings of your knowledge over your students. Spread the wings of your spirituality over the congregation and let them see what you have gleaned and share with them. I'm grateful that Kim is the wife of noble character who understands the importance of garment. And I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to try to pour God's word into this congregation and hope to live a life worthy of the gospel to which I have been called. And it's garments like this that remind me of the task. We're not part of a denomination that wears stoles or a certain uniform. But when I dress on Sunday mornings, I think very seriously about, okay, with this garment, am I able to spread my wings appropriately for the congregation of Glendale Christian Church, and I pray that I am. Well, apparently, Boaz and Ruth understood this importance as well, because in verses 12 and 13, Boaz says, although it's true that I am a kinsman redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I, 
And so he goes on to tell her, stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your kinsman redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Boaz recognized that even though he was a goel, there was another goel closer. And so Boaz was not willing to cheat the law. He would do God's will God's way. And he knew that if it was really God's will, then it should be done orderly and properly. And this demonstrates the nobility and character and wisdom of Boaz. We have to check with this kinsman redeemer who's of even closer relation to Elimelech than I am. We need to check with him first. So stay here until morning. Stay here until morning. And then in verses 14 and 15, it tells us that Ruth lay at his feet until morning and she got up before anyone recognized her. And Boaz said, no one must know that a woman has come to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold on to it. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then she went back to town. Now, this wasn't because any funny business was going on. This was because Boaz wanted to tell the other kinsman redeemer, the other Goel of Elimelech's family, that he was interested in Ruth and that he was going to be the one to buy back Naomi's field, to marry Elimelech's daughter-in-law, and that he was going to be the one to do this if this other Goel did not want to fulfill the duty. He wanted to make sure that as a man of responsibility and character, he was the one to tell this other kinsman redeemer that no one else would spread rumor because we know in the small town of Bethlehem, everybody knows everybody's business. After all, Boaz even says, the whole town knows that you're a woman of noble character. Everybody knows everything. So get out of here before anybody sees and I will go take care of this. That's what's happening. And he gave her a lot of grain to take home. And so when Ruth returned home to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how'd it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Boaz was ever the gentleman. And Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Naomi knew full well what kind of man Boaz is, and he was going to take care of business today. When he wakes up, he's marching over to that other Goel, and he's saying, hey, I'm interested in Ruth and want to marry her and buy back all the fields, and if you are not interested and willing to do it, I'm going to do it. So let's figure this out now. They were not ones for long engagements. Naomi knew Boaz's determination would win the day. She knew of Boaz's goodness, that he would settle the matter immediately. And so the question is, why wait? Why wait? A true faith commitment humbly trusts God to redeem us. Why wait? If there's anyone here who needs to place their trust in Jesus and make a true faith commitment, don't wait. During this last song, come forward and talk to Clay, talk to Chris, talk to me. Pledge your allegiance to following Lord Jesus. Place your faith in him and we'll get you baptized immediately. Why wait? If you're ready to join this body of believers, come forward. Why wait? If you need prayer, come talk to Clay or Chris or me. Why wait? When God is doing something in your life, don't delay. Go, demonstrate a true faith commitment, and humbly trust God to redeem us.